Welcome to Grace to All. I'm your host, Paul Gray. You've probably used the word grace, sang Amazing Grace, or said grace at a meal. But did you know that God's grace is way better than we can even imagine, and that you and all people already have an abundant supply of God's unlimited amazing grace? Today, we're going to hear the truth about God's amazing grace to all people. So, sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired and awakened to the amazing treasures that you already possess. This is truth that you can handle. Welcome back to another edition of Grace to All, and I'm so glad to have with me again Christina Dent. Those of you who heard our interview last week, I know that you were impacted by it and uh, probably may have already contacted her, got her newsletter. Uh, if you didn't get to hear that, please go back and listen to it. We're going to talk some more about it today, but and I won't read her introduction again because it was on last week, but she basically has a great passion for helping people see how in many times the are our prison system is not helpful to people who are addicted to drugs. And she's done a lot of research on that. She's changed her mind. I love that term because it comes from a Bible term, the word metanoia, that we have got to misunderstand it, but it really means to change your mind, to do a a 180 on what you think about God and God's ways and things like that. So enough of me talking. Christina, welcome back. Thanks for being with us again. Thanks, Paul. Great to be back. Thank you. You've been educating people starting in your home state of Mississippi and then doing a TED Talk and doing interviews like this, which I heard you do one with our friend Nicole Jansen, and uh, you've been able to help open people's eyes. Tell us what you're seeing. Have things been implemented either in the United States or in other countries? What's going on out there? Yeah. So quick refresher from the previous episode, when you think about kind of where harms are coming from related to drugs, there's more harm in the market when they're criminalized because it creates crime from an underground market, which funds gang and cartel activity. There's more overdose deaths from contamination. And then there is harm to consumers and their families by criminalizing them, putting them in jail for possessing a substance. So there's no country that has undone all three of those harms. And the only way you can really undo all three of those harms is through some sort of legal access to substances where people have some, you know, there's a label on them. They know what they're taking. They can buy them from a store or a dispensary or a pharmacy of some sort instead of on a street corner. But Portugal took the biggest step that any country has taken to undo those harms from the criminalization of drugs. So they did not address the market. They still have an underground market. They still have contaminated substances, but they decriminalized possession of drugs. So they addressed that consumer harm. And 20 years ago in 2001, they stopped criminalizing the possession of any kind of drug. So if you are caught in Portugal with heroin or cocaine or cannabis or whatever, you're not arrested for it. You can be given a civil citation, like a fine for it, but you can also just go before a committee that offers you, you know, do you think you have a problem with this substance? And if so, do you want treatment for it? Or are there other things in your life that we could help address? Do you need housing? Do you need a job? So they went from having one of the worst overdose death rates in that part of the world in 2001 to now having one of the lowest. And they did it through switching from an approach that tried to force people 
to not use drugs by either threat of punishment or punishment to saying, let's actually address why they want to use drugs. And that I think is just the, the crux of this whole thing is that we have focused almost exclusively on the substance. And we have failed to recognize that substance use is a response. It's a solution attempt at something else, some other problem, some other feeling, some other experience that people want to change in some way. They want to numb it. They want to, you know, feel better. And I actually had one father of a son. He lost his son to a heroin overdose a couple of years ago. And I connected with him after that. He had read an article I had written in the newspaper and he told me that his son's addiction, he realizes now was that when his son was using those drugs, it was a way to turn down the volume on all of the things that he was hurt by, all the hurts that he felt. And I thought that was such a profound way of thinking about substance use as turning down the volume, a way of numbing, a way of taking the edge off all of the different things that can be happening in a person's life that are hard and painful and maybe traumatic experiences that are they have not been able to heal from. And so Portugal, they switched their approach from let's try to punish them out of drug use to let's try to build them a life that they want to be fully present for and so that they won't want to use those drugs as much anymore. And so they stopped arresting people for that, which, you know, the sort of our our cultural understanding is, oh, no, you know, everyone's going to start using drugs. It's going to be mayhem in the streets. They did not find that. They have not had an increase in drug use since they did that. They've had 20 years of data to back that up. But what they did find is their injection drug use dropped in half. Really? Yes. Their drug addiction dropped by a third. So if you just think about Right now in America, I just heard a week or two ago that about one in three families has a family member who is addicted to a drug of some sort. That might be alcohol. It might be any number of things. So what if one out of those three families was not experiencing that? I mean, it it would just be this kind of unprecedented policy win that we would think this is incredible to be. We have an expanding addiction rate, not one that is decreasing. And yet a Portugal found when they stopped traumatizing people that they actually had an addiction rate that fell. Fewer people are problematically using drugs in Portugal today by a third. And then they also found that their drug-related crime dropped, which is a, you, you can see this kind of direct connection to addiction rates decreasing because the vast majority of all property crime, people stealing your stuff, your lawnmower, whatever, and the vast majority of prostitution is all related to getting enough money to feed an addiction. So when you have a third less addiction in your country, you have a lot fewer people that are committing those drug-seeking behavior crimes. So it's been a huge policy win for them. They have shifted from using, the United States uses 90% of our drug intervention money on enforcement and only 10% of it on prevention and treatment. And Portugal does the exact opposite. They spend Ah. 90% of their intervention money on prevention and treatment and only 10% of it on enforcement. The world hasn't ended there. It has actually improved, not just for people using drugs, but for people in the community. Uh, It's better for the community if fewer people are committing drug-related crime. I mean, that's a net positive for everyone. Guys, that's a great example. Christina, are any other countries starting to follow suit? There is no other country that has decriminalized Oregon, our state of Oregon in the U.S., has done a similar thing, but just in November. So it's very early. There's not good data out of there yet on kind of what they have seen from that, but they decriminalized possession of all drugs as well. 
And then they also switched to using some of their taxpayer money from because they have legal adult use cannabis in Oregon. And so they're using some of the tax money that they're getting from cannabis sales to fund an expansion of their drug treatment programs because they had um, really poor access to treatment in Oregon. So Mm -hmm. they're trying a similar thing. We'll see how that pans out. You know, people that I've told the Portugal story to have said, well, you know, that's on the other side of the world and it's Europe and it's a tiny country. And, you know, who knows if that could really work here. So we'll see what happens with that. I think there's a lot of potential for that to be positive, but I also think there is a sense whether or not we realize it in which we appreciate that people are put into jail when they're doing chaotic things, uh, even if they're maybe not committing other crimes, but our human nature is not to want to see people that are struggling. And so we don't realize quite how many of them are actually going into jail right now and their struggle is just hidden from us. And so when we stop putting people in jail who are struggling, there is a part of us, I think, that is going to bulk against that and say, we don't want to see that. We want our world to look nice and put together. And so I think we just need to be aware of that, that a lot of the harm we still see is driven by the criminalization of substances. That's what makes it so expensive to have a drug addiction is that they're criminal. They're very expensive on the street. And so much of that kind of criminal activity in our communities, the thing that really worries us is driven by that underground drug market. So I am optimistic about decriminalizing possession but I'm doubly optimistic about actually bringing those substances back into some regulatory control. Kind of like we did with, you know, alcohol prohibition. We have all of this harm increase. There's contamination. There's gangs and cartels owning the alcohol market. And then when we ended prohibition, all of that violence and crime and all of that chaos subsided, not because alcohol can't do any harm. Certainly it can. It's, it's, it harms a lot of people every year. But because we ended up deciding with alcohol that we should handle it in a way that just reduces the harm. So we, we went from trying this sort of strong arm approach, like we can just shut the lid on it and it will just disappear to saying, you know what, it's not going to disappear. And instead, let's shift to thinking about how we can reduce harm from the substance that is going to be with us. And that I think is the shift that we need to make with all these other substances as well. Yeah. Well, gosh, that sounds good. With our group here in Lawrence, Kansas, just outside of Kansas City, I'm friends with everybody in our congregation. It's not that large of a congregation, but I'm pretty close to all of them. And I officiated at a funeral week after Thanksgiving for some close friends of mine whose 38-year-old son died of an overdose. And there was fentanyl and pretty sure that was contaminated drugs. And I can't put myself in their shoes, but I, I did go through that with them uh, and with their extended family and stuff. And, you know, words can't express the feelings uh, and what goes into something like that. And of course, just saying, well, you know, choices have results. That doesn't help a a grieving mom or dad or brother or sister or uh, whatever, because we all make (laughs) choices that aren't good. And obviously some of them have worse consequences, but being able to, uh, both of those things, decriminalizing and being able to uh, as you said, with alcohol to you know, control it so that you eliminate people going blind from drinking moonshine that has nobody to answer to for the quality of it and that kind of stuff. Boy, that seems like a no-brainer. <laughs> it is. Somebody told me recently, they were like, I'll give you a little more context. I was presenting at, at a civic club and I was presenting the same content that we've talked about over these last two episodes. 
And the president of the club came up to me afterwards and she said, you know, as you were presenting, I kept thinking to myself, there's no way that she's going to talk about legalizing something. There's no way that she's going to talk about that. She said, and then by the end, you kind of got around to talking about that and kind of that's where I end up. And uh, and she said, you know, it does kind of make good sense. And I think I recognize and I feel that struggle in us between you know, what feels wrong to us, like, oh, there's no way that feels like I'm sanctioning drug use. It feels like I'm telling people it's okay. What are my kids going to think, you know, if, if, if I can't say, look, it's illegal and that's why you shouldn't engage in that behavior. And yet, you know, you mentioned fentanyl. I'll tell you a quick story about this. It's a good illustration of the difference between contamination and non-contamination. So my youngest son, he's seven now. So when he was four, we were at the baseball field and we're walking out of the bathroom. His finger got caught in the door and we ended up having to go to the emergency room because he needed stitches to attach the part that got cut. And so we are in the emergency room. This nurse comes in and she's got this syringe and she says, you know, Hey, I'm just going to give him some fentanyl and that's going to help him with the pain so that we can go ahead and, and do these stitches. So she gives him some fentanyl. Then she leaves for a while. They're still waiting on the resident to come. She comes back and she says, Hey, I've got some more fentanyl for him. Uh, I'm going to give him some more while we're waiting, you know, just to, to help with the pain so that we can get these stitches done. So you look at that and you say, now, how could she give pure fentanyl to a four-year-old twice and no adverse effects, actually positive effects. It helped him in a really painful and traumatic situation. And yet, like you said, this 38-year-old adult died from an overdose related to fentanyl, which is very common now for people who are dying of overdoses. It's not the fentanyl per se that's killing people. It is how they are getting it. They're getting it in a baggie of something that they don't know what it is. There's no quality control. They don't know how much fentanyl's in it. They can't dose it appropriately. Like you might take, you know, a prescription where you know what it is and your doctor has said, Hey, for your height and weight and, you know, health and whatnot, you need to take exactly this amount to get the medical benefits of this. And so I just thought, you know, that was such a, that happened in the beginning of this, you know, I'd kind of changed my mind and was beginning to invite other people into this conversation. And it was so shocking to sit in that emergency room and think, well, people are dying from this, like all the time. How is this possible? And it really brought home that we're dealing with a situation of contamination. And when the only way to address that contamination is by kind of releasing this pressure valve from all of these millions of people that are using these contaminated substances because fentanyl's not going anywhere. It's here because it's potent and it's easier to smuggle than heroin is, yeah. you know, because it's more potent than heroin is. Sure. Well, Christina, who, I know the answer to this, uh, who can change things? It's legislators, right? So what's it going to take for legislators to change their minds and see this as a problem and be willing to make those necessary changes. I see that as 100% a function of how many people change their own minds and then are willing to talk about that publicly with their legislators, with their neighbors, with their friends. Legislators are always sort of testing the air to see what is what are people thinking? Do, do they want me to crack down on this? Do they want me kind of what do my constituents want? And for decades of American history, constituents have said, crack down, 
crack down harder. It's not working, crack down harder. And now there is shifting happening because so many people are losing loved ones. And there is a a sense of sort of being broken to the point of we must do something differently. This is a disaster. And that is absolutely how change happens. It's through people being willing to just say something. And I totally get the fear against that. You know, the first time I sat down at Facebook and wrote anything on my Facebook page about drug policy or changing my mind, I was literally shaking. Like my hands were shaking as I was typing. And I thought, you know, all these people from my whole life here in Mississippi, they're going to think I've gone crazy. They're going to think what on earth, you know, is she not a Christian anymore? And and I have recognized that once I started just talking about it and I, you know, go read my posts, I'm, I'm not angry. I'm not, you know, I really want to invite people into this conversation. And I realized in doing that, how many people would come up to me in real life and say, thank you so much for what you're talking about. You know, I grew up in a family where there was addiction and it was so stigmatized that my parents wouldn't go get help or thank you. My son is struggling with an addiction and we've been walking with him for 15 years through this. And it's just so nice to have somebody talk about it and talk about it with compassion instead mm-hmm. of, you know, these junkies that, you know, they made their choice, they made their bed, let them lie in it. When it's your own family member, you can see the complexity and you can see sure. this is your loved one who is just yeah. struggling with something. And yet when it's other people's <clears throat> loved ones, we tend to have a little harder time having compassion, but changed minds. Yeah. Change. Well, exactly. And it, it also occurs to me now, it, well, Kansas is in the Bible Belt, uh, probably Mississippi would be considered more in a Bible Belt, but we're in parts of the country where pastors, priests, ministers still have carry some weight and some respect in what they say. So, it, yes, for people to be willing to talk about it, but it would seem to me that if people would hear their pastors, priests, whatever, rabbis, talking about this in the way that you are, opening some people's eyes, I would think there would be maybe a more openness. Now, at the same time, I would guess that there are a lot of pastors who just aren't going to go there because they think they'll lose people. Yeah, it's tricky because there's a part of me that says, you know, I don't want pastors preaching that people should vote against these kinds of changes. And so I don't know that I want them saying people should vote for these changes. And yet there is a very real legacy that many Christians have had from hearing in their faith communities that even something like medical cannabis is, you know, it's wrong. And so to the degree that we have said that in those communities that we've already kind of brought that into there, people are are looking to their faith leaders to at least give them permission to learn and give them permission to maybe have the freedom of conscience to vote their conscience on this rather than saying there's, you know, you're not a good Christian if you support, you know, cannabis legalization or something like that. Instead saying, this is a complex issue and some of you will be led by your conscience to support it. Not because you want people using cannabis, but just because your conscience does not allow you to support the criminalization of it and putting people in jail yeah. for it and and increasing the amount of money going to gangs and cartels and all the violence that they're doing. That for me was really helpful to recognize 
I'm not changing my values. I'm changing my mind about the best way to implement those values, about the policies that are most consistent with those values. Yeah, that's very important. And to my regret, I was one of those who preached against legalization, not having any idea of the things that you talked about. And so you're doing great work in educating us. And I'm hopeful that a whole lot more people will jump on the bandwagon, as I know you are too. So I appreciate so much you being on. I appreciate what you're doing. Tell us again as we get ready to close how people can find out more about this issue and how they can contact you. Yep, they can go to uh, enditforgood.com. We got lots of resources there. And also across social media, I'm at Christina B. Dent and End It For Good is at, at End It For Good MS. I mean, you can always email me, Christina at enditforgood.com. And I just encourage people to consider not so much this big idea, but think about a, an individual person, a real person, a real, I was in a courtroom one day and this man was brought in in shackles and he had been sitting in jail for three months, just waiting on sentencing. He hadn't been actually convicted of anything. And he was there on a first time heroin possession charge, never had any trouble with the law. There was no paraphernalia, no selling of anything. It was just a heroin possession charge. And it was so interesting, just me thinking about, huh, you know, he's like probably 20 years old. I wonder what his life is like outside of this. I wonder what kind of impact being gone from his life for three months has had. And he had a really unique name. And so I went and looked him up on social media when I got home and I found him immediately. And there, you know, I can scroll through his Facebook profile and I saw he's married. He has a toddler aged daughter. He was working. You just think, what kind of nuclear option have we dropped on that family that suddenly, maybe his wife was a stay-at-home mom, and suddenly the breadwinner in that family is gone, gone from employment, gone from providing. You know, certainly, I don't think his choice to use heroin was a healthy choice, but our response to that has just put this family into an absolute crisis situation. He's gone from his daughter's life for months. So his choice to use heroin is his choice, but the reason he's sitting in jail is our choice. That's what we have chosen to do. And we bear that responsibility for that. And that's what I hope that we can reconsider. Is there a different response other than putting him in jail that would give that family a much better opportunity to stay together and thrive than just putting him in jail and having that nuclear option, tearing them apart. So join this conversation, come find us wherever we are and wherever you're on social media. And let's continue it and continue to journey together towards saving lives and helping more people thrive. Christina, it would certainly seem like God has put you here for just a time as this. I'm really touched by your heart and what you're doing. And I know you'll have good results. It may be a while, uh, (laughs) but uh, uh, counting on that. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Thanks, Paul. I really appreciate the conversation and just your honesty and having the conversation. I just think it's been so refreshing and great for me. Well, thank you. Thank you to everybody who's watched this episode of Grace to All with Paul Gray, a little different than what we usually talk about. And I hope, like me, you'll consider changing your mind and at least exploring some more about what Christine is talking about and then making up your mind having more information now than what you did before. Thanks, everybody. Love you all. See you all next time on Grace to All with Paul Gray. Thank you for listening to Grace to All. For more about us, how we can serve you, and our special guest, please visit www.gracewithpaulgray.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode and to join our Facebook group, Grace to All. 
where you'll be inspired and awakened to more truth that you can handle.